Here we go. Mark 15, 16 to 39. Let's give our attention to God's word. It says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was, a dark, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. The Bible says that all men are like grass and all man's glory is like the flower of the fields and the grass withers and flowers fade away. But that God's word stands forever. So let me pray for us before we look at it further tonight. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we pray now to you as the author of these words that you would, um, that you would be their teacher as well that you by your Holy Spirit would be here with us and that you would that you would give us what we need which is to hear and to receive your word. So Father, would you please do that in spite of uh, certainly my sins as the speaker and all of our sins as the hearers of your word. And we ask it expectantly in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, uh, when I was uh, so when we were still in Louisville, was riding back from our uh, summer uh, RUF staff training and coming through Tennessee. And some of you uh, from Tennessee might uh, be familiar with this. Uh, there are a handful of extremely large crosses 
big white crosses, uh, like 200 feet tall, uh, every, every, you know, scattered around Tennessee and maybe some other states. But so we were passing by one of those. It was me and two other campus ministers. And one of the, uh, one of the other guys was uh, telling about having read, he lived in Tennessee and he had read a, uh, an interview that, uh, with the guy that had built them. And he said that this guy said he wanted it to be so big that when Jesus came back, that he would see it. And so he, you know, our guy reports that, and to which the other guy in the car says, huh, you know, I'm, I'm not so sure that that would bring back the fondest of memories for Jesus, which I thought was very well said. And it's interesting, you know, if you think about it, that this terrible instrument of death, a cross, that would have, that would strike fear into the hearts of of anybody in the first century, that it's become a symbol of of religion, or at least of Christianity, of uh, sort of of something holy. And in some ways, it sort of begs the question, right? So which is it? Uh, is, is the cross, is it a good thing or a bad thing? Is the death of Jesus, the sinless Son of God, is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? And I think our passage tonight shows us that, that the answer to that, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing, is emphatically yes. More than you can imagine. Yes. It's a good thing and it's a, it's a bad thing. Um, this semester, as you know, we're studying through Mark. And our theme every week is wide-eyed wonder. Because that's the way uh, Mark seems to write. He writes with this unique excitement about Jesus. Almost like a little kid that is so excited about their new toy or their new experience that they want to tell you that they can't get the words out fast enough. And we've often said that if you're, especially if you're bored with Jesus, then, Mark, then Mark's gospel is for you. And tonight, uh, in this passage, what we see that I think should cause us to be, uh, to be just as wide-eyed in wonder, what we see is that Jesus in his death is utterly forsaken. He's forsaken. And so I want to look at that. I want to look at three general things uh, along those lines from this passage. First, I want you to see that Jesus is forsaken by people. Secondly, we're going to see that Jesus is forsaken by God. And then thirdly, we'll see that Jesus, uh, that Jesus' being forsaken results in acceptance. Right, so first, Jesus is forsaken by people, by humanity. Uh, last week, if you were with us, you know we talked about how Jesus was abandoned by his uh, friends, by essentially everybody. And here in this passage, in, in the, the story of the cross, uh, that, just, that gets ratcheted up a notch, or a bunch of notches, however you want to quantify it. Um, because here what you see is people don't just... They don't abandon him, uh, as we're going to say. They, they forsake him. They, he catches a hard time. Where do, where do you see that? Um, 
right? All through this story, you hear all about how Jesus is mocked and ridiculed by everybody. It's really interesting that this is the account of Jesus' death. And it seems like the focus almost is, is, it's almost more so on all the mocking and the ridicule that Jesus endures. Look at, look at, um, as we go through the passage, look at everybody who mocks Jesus. Uh, first, in verses 16 through 20, you see the soldiers mock him. I mean, they put a robe on him, a crown of thorns, uh, they give him a fake scepter, and they bow down in front of him and they say, oh, hail, king of the Jews. Right? They're, they're making fun of the fact that he claimed to be the king. Uh, secondly, verse 29 the people that passed by, everybody that walked by, says they shook their heads and they'd say, you know, this guy said he would destroy the temple in three days and build it back. Just why don't you save yourself? Come down off the cross. Third, who do we see? Verse 31, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And they're saying things like, he saved others, but he evidently can't save himself. Uh, Let the Christ, the King of Israel, let him come down from the cross. And then fourthly, in verse 32, the other, the other people that were being crucified with him were mocking him. It's incredible. Right, so let's stop for just a minute and, and think about that. Because it might be hard at first to sort of enter into that, enter into that scene, uh, enter into that mindset of those people that are ridiculing Jesus. And it, I think it'd be easy to think like, how in the world can you... Can you mock Jesus? How can anybody do that? And so look, let's be clear to say, yes, it it was wrong to do that. But keep in mind that Jesus claimed, he claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be the king of the Jews, right? What they're accusing him of. And yet, this is how things are ending up for him. Right? I mean, he was able to be arrested and put on trial, and now he's hanging on a cross. Humanly speaking, everything about Jesus looks like an utter failure. I mean, it's, it's pathetic. To be crucified was the most embarrassing and horrific way to die that possible. Um, it, was, it was reserved for sort of the lowest of the low. People that they wanted to make an example of. Because you would be, uh, almost certainly you would be hung up there naked, obviously exposed, dying. Uh, I'm not completely sure this is true, but I think that it was even illegal for Roman citizens, citizens of Rome, to be uh, executed by crucifixion. It It was just too far if you're a citizen. So this was, especially for the the Jewish people, this was proof positive that Jesus was not who he said he was. That he wasn't the prophet, I mean the Messiah, he wasn't a prophet. Because the Old Testament talks about people that die like this. Deuteronomy 21, uh, verse 22 and 23. uh, It talks about a man, uh, if he's committed a crime that's punishable by death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, uh, it says, his body shall not remain on the tree uh, all night but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. So I mean, their, old, their scriptures say this. 
So there he is, hang, you know, claims to be the son of God. Obviously not. Utter failure. But think about how incredibly painful it would have been it was for Jesus. Think about how bad it would be just for you to take that sort of abuse and that sort of mocking. Right? I think some of the other Gospels tell us that, uh, that they would blind, they blindfold him, they would hit him, and they'd say, prophesy! You know, you're, you're the prophet, who hits you? And then they'd hit him again. But that this isn't one of us, this isn't a normal person. This is, this is Jesus. He, he actually is the king of the universe, the creator of every one of those people that was making fun of him. He made the world and he made every one of those people. And now he, he's taking all this embarrassment and all of this shame and, and his, his life is ending in just apparent utter failure. He's the ultimate loser, it seems. Uh, it reminded me of a scene in Jerry Maguire. I know that's like a super dated reference. Has anybody seen Jerry Maguire? Okay, both of you. Good. Uh, that's okay. Let me tell you this story about Jerry Maguire. Uh, there's this scene. Jerry Maguire is a sports agent. Uh, he's one of the you know sort of um, uh, sharpest, coolest you know it guys, and he gets fired from his firm. And so his fiance is trying to uh, pump him up and, and convince him he can go out there on his own and, you know, he's going to be okay. And she says, this is slightly edited, she says, you are Jerry Maguire. You are the king of the house call. You are the master of the living room. You are not a loser. And so he was with her, you know, on the king of the house call, master of the living room. And he kind of walks off into the closet for a second. And she says, you are not a loser. And he realizes that evidently she's saying that because that's what people are saying about him. And he walks back in the room with this just ashen look. And he says, who said anything about loser? And she goes, uh, never mind. I, I, I meant something. And she tries to cover it up. Right? But I think we can all identify with Jerry. It's probably our greatest fear. Our greatest fear is that when it's all said and done, that, that we were nothing but a failure. We're, we're, just, we're just a big loser. We tried, we tried life and we came up empty. Um, yeah, we look at our days and you add it up and it's just nothing but pathetic. And that's what Jesus is facing here and enduring and he's enduring it to a degree which nobody else has, has probably ever even touched. All right, so what does that mean for us? How does that apply to us? Well, look, I bet you know what it's like to feel at least a little bit of that. Um, to, know what, to, to feel shame. To have the world or your friends or your not friends, to have people look at you and say, you're not good enough. You're not, you're not pretty enough. You're not smart enough. You're not good enough. You're not fill in the blank. And, and to feel like, to 
feel like a big loser. To feel the shame of that. And so one thing it means for us is that you, you have a Savior that knows what that feels like. That knows somehow even greater than the shame that we uh, experience. He knows what it feels like to be called those things. He knows what it feels like. Uh, it means, and more than that, it means that you have a Savior that has actually borne your shame for you in an ultimate sense. Uh, Romans 9.33 says, As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Right, that means, it means that the shame of our sin, and not just the guilt, right, not just the, um, the punishment that we rightly deserve. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Not, it's not just that that's taken away, but it's also the shame. Right, when you're, again, you know what it feels like to be exposed or embarrassed for what you've said or something you've done, or maybe something that was done to you. Uh, to have, have people find out your secret. To be exposed in some way. To not measure up. And, and shame is when that comes along and it says, that's, that's not just this little part of you. Uh, it, that's all of you. Who you really are is pathetic. It's not just that you're bad at that. You are bad. You're bad at everything. You're the ultimate loser. And it's so easy for that to define us. That we're shaped by that. And as it... So I think the beauty of this, right, one aspect of this, is that is that, that shame doesn't have to define you. Because Jesus came and He took uh, shame, I guess you could say with a capital S, he took, it, he took it and it died with Him. So that when you and I experience shame with lowercase s, shame, that we're able more and more to experience it and, and have it not define us. Because it's not the final verdict. Because the final verdict is, is that you have, you have a Savior, you have Jesus that came and He said, I'm going to bear, I'm going to bear ultimate shame because I love you. Because you're not a loser to me. You're valuable to me. And I'm going to take it myself. So that that can define us. So we see that uh, Jesus is forsaken by people and what that means. Secondly, I want you to see that Jesus is forsaken by God. And I think this is the central main uh, aspect of this passage. Right? It's, the, it's, the, it's the climax of everything in verse 34. Uh, so Jesus was crucified at about uh, 9 in the morning. And then at about 12, noon, everything goes dark. The sun quits shining. And then three hours later, at 3 o'clock, after six hours on the cross, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a quote from Psalm 22. And look, to say that those words on the lips of Jesus... Are, are profound and mysterious is an incredible understatement, right? Um, 
One commentator I read about that, uh, about that sentence says that every single word is packed with meaning and, and preaches a sermon. And he walks through it and he, he says, just that my God, my God, right? Jesus doesn't address him as father like he almost always does. Now hanging on the cross, he addresses him... Uh, he addresses him as my God. You can, you can feel the distance. And it's, I don't know what it is. It's mysterious. And yet at the same time, he's still praying and asking God. Uh, it's all that he knows to do. My God, my God, why? Right? Jesus is asking why. And it's astounding, really. Um, you have the, you have the, the Son of God asking His Father, why is this happening? Right? In some sense, I think that's very comforting and, and liberating for us. My God, my God, why have you? You can hear Jesus' pain. It's almost as if He's saying, look, I can, I can deal with my friends leaving me and the disciples and the people that hate me, but you? How, have, how are you turning your back on me? forsaken, right? Abandoned. It's almost hard to believe that Jesus is really saying that because Jesus is feeling God turn his back on his son because he is. The presence that Jesus has always enjoyed, the perfect fellowship with God the Father that he's always enjoyed for eternity and now it's gone. Right? It's the fullness of what we talked about last week that he just got a taste of in the garden. Now it's, it's just raining down on top of him. And then why have you forsaken me? Right? It's almost like of, of all people, I'm the only one that's been faithful. And that's true. I'm your son. It's incredible. So what's happening What's going on on the cross? And look, to sum it up, Jesus is forsaken by God. He, he, he's experiencing the wrath that God has for sin that you and I deserve. He's the, he's being, he is being the fulfillment of what the Old Testament sacrificial system pointed to of what the lamb and the goat and the bulls and all that pointed to. That God's wrath would fall down on this thing and and not on you. And now he's experiencing it. Um, uh, We've talked about some of this, or some of you have heard me talk about this before, but, you know, pick, pick any story of just awful injustice or sin that you've heard of. Um... I remember hearing, reading a story in the news several years ago. Uh, I think it was a guy in Colorado. He got uh, upset with his wife, and so he took his wife and he uh, tied a chain around her legs, and he chained that. Uh, he took the chain and tied it to the axle of his truck, and he drove around his neighborhood with his wife, just trailing behind. And the article said that they found pieces of her for miles. 
Now look, there's zillions of stories like that, right? But when you hear something like that, I want, what do you feel inside? I bet if you're like me, I bet most people, right, it just, it just sort of makes you burn. And you think, that is wrong. And I'll bet that most of you think, like, so what should happen to that guy? Let's tie him to a bumper and let's drive around with him. That's what he deserves, right? That's a little taste, right? That's, that's our, I guess you could say, wrath, judgment. That's ours. But you didn't know that guy. What if that was your, what if that was your mom or your wife or your daughter? Right, how much more so? Well, let's take it up another notch. What if you created her? What if she was yours because you crafted her and you loved her? Right? Can you begin maybe just to begin to taste like the kind of, the kind of wrath that is really there for sin? Right? That's what Jesus is taking on the cross. And not just that one story, but every single story of every one of God's people all somehow bundled together, dropped on his head. That's what he's facing on the cross. He's switching places with his people and taking that for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake... Uh, he, God, made him Jesus. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Right, you see what that's saying? That Jesus is bearing that, he is switching places with us. He's taking what we deserve. Look, there's a ton of applications we can make about that, but... Real quick, just a couple. Uh, one, I think it helps us to see the um, helps us to see the seriousness of sin, right? Uh, if you if you tend to think, yeah, sin's not that big of a deal, um, yeah, right. Uh, look at the cross. That's what sin deserves. It deserves the the death of the sinless Son of God. There's a line in a song called Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. And it says this, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Right? You hear what it's saying? If you, if you don't think sin's a big deal, look at the cross. That's how big of a deal it is. But it's also... It's also how our sins are forgiven. Right? If you trust in Jesus, then that death was for you. Then you have a a forgiveness that is absolutely complete. There is nothing left. There is no more judgment, no more wrath left for you. Every single ounce was poured out on Jesus. And so... That means that you can, look, if you're a believer, that means you can take, I want you to take whatever, whatever sin it is that plagues you. Uh, when you feel 
when you feel really guilty and your conscience rises up and it calls you that name, right? What's that name for you? When your conscience says, you are a pervert. Or it says, you are, you're just a slut. Or you're just a cheater. Or you're a terrible friend. Whatever that name is, this truth means that you get to look and see that Jesus became that, he died as that name for you. Jesus became the pervert, the slut, the drunk, the fill in the blank, the, the phony Christian. He became that, and he, was, he didn't become sinful. But he was identified as that sin and God poured out the wrath on him for you. And so that means that, that you're free. That when that name rises up and it says you know you're nothing but a... That in one sense you, you get to look at yourself and say yes, that's true and no it's not. It is absolutely not true of me anymore. Thirdly and finally and very quickly I want you to see uh, that Jesus' forsakenness, it results in our acceptance. Um, and it, really, this is just an extension of what we've been talking about. Um, quick, two parts to this. Uh, look in verse 38. Uh, one of the re, uh, results of Jesus' death, it says that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What was the curtain of the temple? We've talked about this uh, a few weeks ago. The temple, right, every, had a certain arrangement, and, and in the very middle was what was called the Holy of Holies. Is where God's presence dwelt. And it was separated from everything else by this curtain. And only the high priest went in, and only once a year. And it, so do you see what, uh, at, at Jesus' death, because of Jesus' death, God takes that curtain that separated himself in a sense, and he rips it in half. Right? Showing Jesus' death, because of Jesus' death, now you get, you get immediate access. You get to come in. You get to be with me. And I want you to notice who it was for. Uh, look at verse 39. You see the, uh, the centurion. He says, uh, he sees Jesus die. Uh, and, and he says, this is the Son of God. Alright, so I want you to, this is pretty amazing. Some really smart people, not me, have noticed uh, that uh, there's this strong parallel with something in chapter 1 of Mark. Uh, chapter 1, 10, verses 10 and 11. Both verses, the one in chapter 1 and then this one, you know, it, so at the beginning and basically the end of the gospel, um, you have this, something is torn and then someone proclaims that Jesus is the Son. In chapter 1, uh, it says that the heavens were, uh, Jesus' baptism, the heavens were torn open. It's the same word. And God himself says, this is my son. And here, uh, in, in 15, you have the veil being torn. And immediately after that, the centurion says, this is the son. So do you see what, think about who that is. We've gone, in the course of this gospel, from God himself having to proclaim, this is my son, to a centurion. Now, who is that? Well, number one, it's a person. 
Number two, uh, it, he's, he's, not a, he's not a Jew. He's not one of God's people, right? He's, he's a Roman. He, and he's not just a Roman. He's one of the guys that hung Jesus on the cross, not metaphorically, literally. He's one of the guys that was making fun of Jesus. And now, the biggest outsider that you can imagine, because of Jesus' death, he's looking and he's saying, that's the Son of God. That's amazing. What does that mean? That means that, that the good news, that what Jesus has accomplished, it's for anybody and everybody. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, it's for you. Right? This guy gets it. If it's for this guy, it's for you. And it's for me. So is it a good thing or bad thing? Uh, Hebrews 12, 1-2. It says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before Him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Right? There, there it is. The shame. Jesus experienced it and He hated it. But He says He did it. The Bible says He did it. Why? Because there was something better. There was a joy that was set before Him. What was it? That joy is me and you. That He looks at you and He says, you're worth it. I'll endure it because I love you. It's His love for sinners that kept Him pinned to that cross. Because I think we could say that Jesus' big, biggest miracle, it, was not, it wasn't something that He did, it was something that He didn't do. Right? The people are mocking Him, making fun of Him, like, oh, you saved everybody else, why don't you just come on down? Right, you recognize he could have come down. It could have been the easiest thing in the world for him. But he didn't. He could have stopped it all. But he didn't. And he didn't because he loves you and me too much. And that's the good news. That's what's offered to us tonight. And I, I pray that you take it. Let me pray for us. Father, we... Um, to take just a few moments and look at the cross, uh, we are utterly overwhelmed. Father, would you please help us to just begin to understand the depth of it, to believe it, to trust you in your love for us. We pray that that uh, grace would be true and would reign in the hearts of everyone in this room. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.